Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. Well, we are in the middle of a series called The Resistance, as you saw in the trailer. And tonight is The World Strikes Back, the third and final episode of the series, The Resistance. Uh, for those of you who are new to Chi Alpha, my name is Pete, and I'm the director of Chi Alpha. It's my joy to be able to bring God's Word to us tonight, and um, I look forward to meeting you if you are, are new here. We've been going through this series and looked at the three enemies of the soul that we see in Scripture, that uh, followers of Jesus have talked about for centuries, and they are the devil, the flesh, and the world. And so tonight, we're going to deal with the the third one, and we're basing a lot of this off a very helpful book that many of us on staff have read called Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. I'd highly recommend the book to you if you want to learn more about what we're talking about. Well, it was my freshman year of high school, and for those of you who may not remember, I told this the very first week of the semester, when I started high school, I was five foot two, 99 pounds. I remember that in my freshman physical because I wanted to see the weight move over Anyways, they, they, we didn't have electronic scales, and I wanted to see it go from the 50 to the 100. So I, anyways, I never did. But, um, but I went out for track, and my coaches said that I had good hurdling form. Well, five foot two, 99 pounds isn't exactly the prototype for a hurdler, but I found myself running varsity hurdles as a freshman. Now, don't be impressed. All that means is there weren't many hurdlers in my high school, okay? That's all that means. Um, I ran the 300 intermediate hurdles. Now, if you know anything about racing and, and track, you know the 300 intermediate hurdles is known to be one of the most difficult races because it is basically, essentially, a sprint the whole way with hurdles in your way, okay? Now, you do have to pace yourself a little bit. But um, So, my very first ever track meet that I ever ran was at Anna Jonesboro High School, and as I recall, it was the Bunny Bread Invitational. Now, don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure it was the Bunny Bread Invitational. And you'd have to know a little bit about Southern Illinois to understand that, but Bunny Bread was made in Anna Jonesboro, so we went to the Bunny Bread Invitational. Okay, so my very first ever meet, I take off, I run the first 200 meters, jumping over the hurdles, and by the time I get to that last 100 meters, I turn the corner on the curve, turn the corner, and I am starting to feel it, if you know what I'm talking about, starting to feel winded. And when I turn the corner, I am hit by a vicious headwind that made me feel like I was running in place. Like, I, 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 was, I, I was already tired. The headwind is, is um, coming at me strong. I'm worn out, and I have hurdles to jump along the way. And I finally finished the race, which was victory in of itself. I, I will say that um, I got done before they started the next race, which was also another victory. I came so far in last place, it's not even funny, but it was a moral victory because I finished. But anyways, the reason why I tell you this story is because the Bible gives us a picture of what it looks like to walk with Jesus, and it says that there are some, some pretty strong headwinds that we face as we follow Jesus. And the Let me put it this way. We live in contested space as a follower of Jesus. There are headwinds coming at us. 
And the headwind we're going to talk about tonight is what is called in the Bible the world. Now, the world isn't talking about the elements of the periodic table, okay? When the Bible uses that, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about this realm that is spoken of by Jesus and by his followers. And I'll just go ahead and give you a definition of, uh, of the world. This is my definition, not probably the best definition, but I pulled some things together. And this is the summation of what the Bible means by the world. The norms, values, systems of thinking and living that are broadly embraced, but are hostile and opposed to God's will and influenced by the forces of darkness. So the world is this realm of hostility that, that presses against the will of God. And it says that are influenced by the forces of darkness. Let me uh, share a verse with you that just really shares about that last part. First um, John 5.19 says this, We know that we are children of God, and then listen to this, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one? What? Well, what it's saying is this, is that, the system of the world, this, um, these embrace systems and values and norms that are hostile to the will of God, that the, the strings are being pulled, so to speak, by the forces of darkness that are trying to, to uh, come against God's will in the world. They're not just happen to be norms, but there is something behind them that is creating the sense that this is contested space that we live in. So we have been walking through this series. I want to show you how the series ties together. And this is a, a chart ad adapted from uh, Live No Lies, where first we talked about how we face the devil and, and that his primary stratagem in the world from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, his primary stratagem is this, is to sow deceitful thoughts and lies into the world, okay? And so we see that that's his primary stratagem. Then... Those deceitful, those deceitful thoughts and lies appeal to our flesh. They, they, are, they play to our disordered desires. We are fallen, so we have these disordered desires and these lies come right to... They appeal so um, kind of seductively, may I say, uh, to our deceitful uh, and disordered desires. And then... Those lies are normalized in our sinful society. In other words, they're lies, but they are made to look normal. Yet, they're against the grain of how God created the world, how he created us, and go against the grain of life, go against the grain of flourishing. And what we know is, as Jesus said this, that the enemy seeks to steal, kill, kill, and destroy. In other words to bring progressive destruction in the world. And this is how it unfolds. Lies that play to our disordered desires that are then normalized in a sinful culture. So Jesus comes. And when people talk about the, talked in the New Testament about the gospel of Jesus, it's interesting. They don't just talk about Jesus saving us from hell. Now, did they talk about that? Surely. 
But they don't just talk about Jesus saving us from hell. Here's what they say. In fact, this is from the very first message that was ever preached on the day of Pentecost. Go ahead and put up the next slide. It says this. That, that, okay, this is the end of the message. This is the altar call. Peter is preaching the first message, and this is his altar call. Save yourself from this corrupt generation. In other words, he wasn't just saying save yourself from an eternal punishment of some sort. He was saying save yourself from the world, from this hostility. Okay, the generation that Peter's talking about was so corrupt that when God came in flesh in the person of Jesus, they killed him. And they felt absolutely justified in doing so. Now, can you say that's pretty, a pretty corrupt generation when you kill Jesus and you feel justified in doing so? And so Peter's pleading with them saying, save yourself by accepting Jesus from this corrupt generation. Then Paul, the Apostle Paul, as he writes the the book of Galatians, which just hammers out the beauty and the wonder of what Jesus has done for us. And it starts this way. It says this. As it explains what Jesus said, he said, Jesus, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. In other words, Jesus died on the cross to Break the power of sin in your life by taking the punishment of that sin, raising it back to life, victorious. Why? So that you could be rescued from this present evil age, from the powers of the world. Why do I say this? Because the gospel isn't just about where you go when you die. The gospel is about what realm you live in today. It's about where you live now. Do you live in the realm of the world or do you live in the realm of the kingdom of God that you've been rescued from the world and put in God's kingdom? So the reason why that is very, very important is because we um, have to learn how do we live in the world but not be of the world, as Jesus said. So turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, and we're going to read our text for tonight. And we're going to talk about how to come against the third enemy called the world. Romans chapter 12, if you go to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans is the next book. And while you're turning there, we're going to pick up in the, in the middle of Romans. So let me tell you what happened the first 12 chapters in about one minute. The first three chapters are about telling us how sinful humanity is, that there is none who are innocent, not even one. None of us sitting here are innocent of sin. Then it talks about how if you put your trust in Jesus that you can receive a righteousness from Christ because he took your sin, then he gives you his righteousness as you put your trust in him. And not only that, then you're made alive by the Spirit to live a new life. You've been rescued from the world, and now you've been given the Spirit to live in the realm of the kingdom of God. And now Paul's going to talk about, so how do you respond to what Jesus has done. And we're going to read just these two verses, and we're actually going to focus in on verse number two. Paul 
writes to the church in Rome, and he says this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so Paul says this, you've been saved from the world, so don't conform to the world, okay? If he saved you, if he rescued you out of this present evil age, if he is saving you from this corrupt generation, then don't go and live like that. Don't conform from what you've been saved from or back to what you've been saved from, but be transformed, he says. Um, I've been thinking a lot about how we are creatures of conformity. We are sheep. (laughs) Um, We're herding creatures, okay? Let me give you some examples. I've been here 21 years, and when I first came here, uh, jeans looked different. They did. They looked different. Like, people wore these things called bootcut jeans. I don't know if you guys know bootcut jeans. But they were, you know, they had a nice little flare bottom. And, uh, and, and everybody wore them, and everyone looked normal wearing these bootcut jeans. And then all of a sudden, something happened. And these musicians started wearing these things that I'm like, what are they doing? They're called skinny jeans. You guys ever heard skinny jeans? You know skinny jeans? Yeah, yeah, you know skinny jeans. Yeah, all of a sudden, these skinny jeans started coming around, and I'm like, who would ever wear those things? They look so uncomfortable. And then like four years later, I'm like, hey, you got any skinny jeans? You know, what, what, what number are the Levi's that are skinny? Whatever, you know. All of a sudden, buying skinny jeans. And then I, I, if you had told me this a couple years ago, I would not have believed you. But then something happened that we called mom jeans. That came, that came back. Okay, if 20 years ago you wore mom jeans, they'd be like, what are you dressed up for? Okay. And then something else happened. We, we buy mom jeans. Well, I don't, but you know, I mean, people do. And then we cut off the bottom quarter of them. I mean, the first time I saw that, I thought, what in the world? Their, their jeans are too short. And that's the thing. Whenever I first got here, your jeans had to sit on top of your shoes, you know, and that's how you knew they were long enough. Now, if they do that, you roll them up until they're too short. I'm like, why do we do these things? Because somebody in some magazine started doing it or shot an Instagram picture and all of a sudden we're all cutting off our jeans or, or rolling them up till they're too short and we're like, look at me, right? So at first we think, that's kind of odd, that's weird. And then you're like, hey, where can I get some of those? I know you've never done that, but anyways. So, so with our fashion, we are creatures of conformity. Um, how about vernacular? Like the the words we say are vernacular. Like um, I, here at, at our very first M and L this year, we're meeting at Old Cabell Hall, and I had this young lady come up to me, and she's like, "I love the holy vibes here." And I was like, "Wow, I did not know vibes could be holy, but <laughs> but I think that's a compliment. I think you just gave me a compliment. Thank you for the holy vibe compliment." 
And I kid you not, I guarantee you, this year I've said the word vibe 10 times more than I ever said last year. For that matter, for the first 20 years of my time at UVA. Now I'm talking about the vibe of this and the vibe of that. I'm like, what am I doing? I'm not even trying to be a cool college student. I'm just talking about the vibes. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we got a good vibe going on right now, right? You know what I'm saying? Why do I do this? Creature of conformity. So. Then, you know, years ago I listened to a podcast and they said that every city in America has a certain walking speed. And that you can deduce a lot about a city by the speed in which they walk. Did you know that? So like, they, and they talked about what cities in the world had the fastest speeds in America and so on. And I thought, I'm sure it's true of campuses too, that, you know, UVA probably has a pretty fast walking speed compared to other schools, I think. I, that's, you know, or otherwise you're going to, you're going to go down on the bridge if you don't, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like you go your own speed on the bridge, you're going down. But the point is, is this. If you entering into a city can determine the pace you walk, what else does it determine? If, if we conform with our, the way we dress, with the words we say, with the pace we walk, what else do we conform to? How else? Okay, so it's not just, here's the thing, the world is not just trying to shape the, the rate in you walk, you walk or what you wear or what you say, the world is trying to shape your heart. To have you feel certain things and desire certain things, to have you believe certain things and, and think certain things. I was listening to a, a podcast by a guy, pastor in New York City, whose name is John Tyson. And he said, I was thinking about this verse that I just read about what a person in Rome would have faced as they left their house to go to the villa in Rome that their house church would have met in. And I kind of pictured them walking through Rome. And he said, and I, I pictured them walking past the theater where pagan stories would have been shared. Then I pictured them walking past pagan temples where the idolatries of Rome were worshipped. Then I pictured them walking past brothels where the sexual ethics of Rome were on display. Then I pictured them walking past monuments and propaganda of the, of the Roman Empire and Pax Romana and how they were, how certain ide, political ideologies were, were coming at them. So I pictured them walking past the emperor's cult. And his point was this, that Rome was a formation machine. I mean, just to get to church, to get to the villa where your church would meet, you had to encounter all these realities that were seeking to form you. And he said, they, then they sit down and they hear this verse. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, you're maybe wondering, like, why does he have a waffle iron? 
Because today on my way home, I was thinking I should bring a waffle iron. Because it's like the world wants to pray. I was thinking about this. The only difference between a pancake and a waffle is this. Kind of. Okay. I'm not trying to do. Okay. Be quiet, Blake. All right. All right. Kind of. Okay. But here's the point. The culture of Rome wanted to press them into the form of a good Roman citizen and dictate the contours of their life. Right? And Paul says, no, 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 no. You need to be transformed into the image of Jesus. Well, as I heard that, I started thinking about our own culture. I mean, I was thinking about how powerful of a formation tool our culture is. Like, how our culture is full of stories, too. And yet, we don't just go to the live theater once a month to get those stories. We get those stories all the time from Netflix and Hulu, the movie theater, and YouTube. And then I was thinking about how the, the other things that a, a Roman citizen would have encountered on their way to church, and, and, and I thought about how all that's in our pocket, like on probably about three or four apps. You could be inundated with the idolatries of our culture. You could be inundated with the sexual ethics of the world. You could be inundated with the ideologies of our world. And I started to think about how, yeah, Rome was a strong formation uh, tool. But how we, we don't even have to leave our room to be formed. We don't have to go on a walk through our city. We just have to pull our phone out of our pockets and we can be formed. And yet it's trying to form us, it's trying to press us into the mold of the world which is hostile against God and his will. Trying to form the desires of our heart and the thoughts of our mind. And then I started thinking about the the micro particular culture we live in at UVA. Like how does UVA form us? Not just like the culture at large, but like the These grounds. I was talking to somebody recently who is a mental health professional in this town. And we were talking about UVA and he he had some interesting observations of somebody who's been here a while working with people with mental health issues. And here's some of his observations. He said, elite cultures are very unforgiving. That there's not a lot of love in them. He said there's just measurement upon measurement upon measurement, but you can't measure up easily. And then he was telling me about a conversation he had with a, somebody who was a, a professor in another city, but who knew Charlottesville well. And they were talking about if there was like a a certain stronghold over Charlottesville and over UVA in particular. He said the answer would be fairly easy. It would be pride. 
And so what do you, what happens when you pull together like the, it's um, the, the sense that, that it's unforgiving, that there's not a lot of love in it, but a lot of pride, and how does that come together, and, and what is that form? Let me just say this. I, I've been at UVA for 21 years, and I, I, I love being campus pastor, so I'm not against UVA when I say this, but, but, but here's what I know. is like those strands have come together, and they can produce a, a criticalness that flows easily, and we have to ask ourselves the question, like, how is UVA and the, the pride of UVA and the unforgiving nature of UVA and not a lot of love, how does that come together to press in on us, to form us? Because Jesus says that he wants us to be formed into people who are loving and humble and gracious and grateful Yet what we're pushed in on doesn't necessarily lead us to that, does it? And so we have to ask the same question that, that the believers in Rome had to ask. Like, okay, our macro culture and our micro culture, how are these wanting to form us? And yet we're supposed to look like Jesus. We're supposed to look in a, go in a different direction and look a whole lot different than the culture around us. So... Let me give you a quote by uh, a theologian by the name of Walter Brueggemann. Um, he, he, has a, he has this quote about how hard this is for us to realize how we're being formed. He says this, The conforming happens subtly, not frontally. We join the dominant ideology with innocence and without noticing. In the congregation are those who do not notice their conformity and thus are incapable of imagining any alternative. We may notice how the others have conformed, but we are not so skillful in noticing how we ourselves have joined the version of ideology most compatible with our social location and interests. Isn't that interesting? How we can just be conformed and we don't even realize it because everyone around us is being formed in the same way well what do we do how do we not synchronize with how do we not be at uva and of uva how do we not be in the world and other but how do we be at uva but not of it but of a different of jesus i'm so glad you asked Romans 12 actually tells us, I'm just going to hit two things, I'm going to tell a story, we're going to close it down. He tells, tells us two ways that we can be transformed. Number one is by what we consume. By the renewing of your mind. See, here's the thing, the system of the world presses in on us, and, and if you're like me, here's what I know. Your mind starts to wander and your heart starts to drift. Like the, the, press, the pressing in of the world doesn't cause you to be drawn to Jesus. No, it actually causes your mind to go somewhere else and your heart to go somewhere else where you're not thinking about the truth of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus, the, the gospel of Jesus. 
but you're thinking about the things of the world. And so Paul says you have to renew your mind and go in the other direction. In other words, what you consume, what you set your mind on, will either conform you or transform you. Can I give you, I'll just, I'll just be as straight as I can with this. I have never seen someone who was transformed into the image of Jesus, who also wasn't deeply saturated in the truth of Jesus. When I, what, I, what I mean by that is, they, yes, there are persons who, people who, who read the Bible, they, they, there are people who, who just know the truth of the goodness and the glory and the greatness of Jesus. They also saturate their minds with thoughts about Jesus from reading other authors. There are people who, uh, who listen to podcasts or, or listen to worship music. Whatever it is, if you go behind the scenes of their life, somebody who is deeply transformed to look like Jesus, who is making an impact in the world for Jesus, if you go behind the curtain of their life, what you'll see is that they are saturated with the truth of Jesus. Their mind has been renewed. And in doing so, they think differently and their hearts have been renewed. They feel differently. And it all goes back to what they consume so number one paul tells us don't be conformed to the pattern the waffle pattern of this world where the contours of your life are dictated by the world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind now does that mean that you can only watch christian movies and i'm I'm just that's not what i'm saying okay but i am saying what you consume will dictate if you conform or transform. Secondly, Paul tells us the second way that we are uh, transformed, and that is through community. If you read the rest of Romans chapter 12, the rest of the chapter is about Christian community. about Christian community. How do you live in community? Why does Paul do that? Why does he start talking about Christian community? Well, uh, uh, Tim Keller says this. He says that every one of us are formed by our community, not by our individual choices. I mean, if you, and if you take exception with that, well, um, think about how your first five years was formed by your own individual choices probably formed by your family of origin and probably that formation of those first five years is something that still is with you today. Any social scientist would tell you that. And so then we come into the family of God as as followers of Jesus. And how does God transform us? Well, he uses many things, but one of the things he uses is he transforms us by our community. In fact, people will tell you this, that you will become like your closest friends. In fact, I was thinking about this, Valentine's Day. Um, studies have shown the longer you're married, the more you look like your spouse. Yeah, that's scary for my wife, but that's a whole different story. <laughs> 23 years later. I'm sorry, honey. <laughs> you should have thought about that. I'm glad she didn't know. But anyways, that's... The point is, 
we, who you, who your inner circle is will start to form you in ways that are profound. It will either bring out the best and most virtuous parts of you and cause those to flourish and develop, or it'll bring out the less virtuous parts of you and cause those to flourish, quote unquote. Our community is tremendously formative. In fact, Paul in chapter 12, here's a list of some of the things that he exhorts them to live out in their community. Okay, imagine this. Imagine you're sitting in the Roman villa, and it is the most stratified um, culture you can imagine. And he says this, honor one another. Then he says, have a zeal for the Lord that's infectious among you. People are so, you're so passionate about Jesus that you're like battery chargers for each other. And then be generous to those who are in need. Oh, and rejoice and mourn together. Be in it together. Even if your social structures don't demand it, be in it together. And be humble. Don't consider one person better than another. And be gracious and forgiving. And they're sitting there. And can you imagine if you were part of a community, hopefully you can't imagine, where these things are, are, are being lived out, how formative that would be and is. Here's the point. When Paul was talking about that, by the way, he wasn't just talking about somebody who would come, you know, periodically. No, this, these were about like relationships you're deeply ingrained in and you're participating in actively and the the intimacy of those friendships and the brotherhood and sisterhood was forming you. And so Paul, he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind and then live in community like this. One thing I think we need to understand is what the church is meant to be in the world. The church, big C church, our fellowship is meant to be God's alternative in the world. Like we're the alternative to the world. We're God's people who live in this type of community who says we're the alternative to the world. And here's the problem. When we conform to the pattern of the world, we're no alternative. There is no alternative if we're not it. And so this is why who we are as a people matters so much because we're his alternative. Well, let me close. Um, Go ahead and call the worship team up. As we close out this this series about the enemies of the soul, I want to leave us with a verse verse is this, it's out of Ephesians 6, it says this. Okay, so Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he tells them this, Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And then I love this. And he says, and after you've done everything to stand, what does he say? After you've done everything to stand. Like, after you've done everything to stand and you have on the full armor of God, then stand. 
Oftentimes when I've read this historically, I've thought about it more in the individual terms. But Paul was writing to a church. And he's basically saying this, together, as the people of God, when you've done everything to stand, here's what you do, stand. And I was thinking about this image that we stand shoulder to shoulder as God's people, as God's alternative to the world, as people who've been showered in the grace of Christ filled with his love, made alive by his spirit, and we stand in the face of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we say, we're going to stand for our king and be his alternative. Maybe you've heard this story, but I thought I would bring it up one more time as we close out this series. In 1935, Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, was a believer in Germany who saw what was going on in his own country and the, the rise of the Nazis and the intensity of the ideologies of, of the Nazis that was coming into Germany. And so he started a, a little seminary, an underground seminary called Finkenwald, or in a town called Finkenwald. And he taught how to be people of prayer, how to be people of scripture, how to be people of fellowship. And, and it, was, it, it was less like a seminary and more like a boot camp historians talked as they talked about it. In fact, it was so intense that some of his friends were concerned, like, Dietrich, are you being a little too over the top? And so one time he had a friend with him who was trying to say, I think maybe you're going a little too far. It's a little too intense. And so he took them, took his friend on a, on a rowing trip across Oder Sound. And when he got to the other side of the sound, they peered through the thicket or whatever they were looking through. And they saw the Nazi camp and they saw planes landing and they saw soldiers in formation. And, they, they, he, and he talked about the, the cruel kingdom that they were preparing for and seeking to advance. And his point was this, that what I'm doing has to be more formative than that. And one author put it this way, this has to be stronger than that. And as I was thinking about closing out this series, I thought that how true that is for us as Chi Alpha. That if we're going to be who God wants us to be, as the people of God, that are God's alternative to the world, then, then our formation and our discipleship as followers of Jesus, that this in this room must be stronger than that. Must be stronger than all the forces that that seek to mold us. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. John 4, 4, 1 John 4, 4 says this, that greater is he that's in us. As followers of Jesus, that the one that is in us is greater than the one that's in the world. And one day he's going to make all things new. But in the meantime, 
after you've done everything to stand stand will you stand with me and we do this not because of any animosity but out of love for the world that desperately needs an alternative yes lord I pray that we as individuals and together collectively as a community, that we would stand, that we would be people with renewed minds whose hearts are reoriented to the King, whose minds are filled with glorious thoughts about our King. That we would be people in community that reflect an alternative to the world that's attractive. And that we would stand. Lord, I pray that, that our lives would be defined by seeing victory over the, the devil, the flesh, and the world. That, that you, King Jesus, would be glorified and honored. For your glory and our good. So Lord, as we close out this series, give us the spiritual steel to stand for you. In Jesus' name. Amen. And let me give the benediction tonight. May God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you may be gracious to you and turn his countenance towards you and may he give you peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's have a great week following Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com.